Last week, we saw Abraham. He was willing to go to battle for a family member, for his nephew Lot. And we noted also last week that we need to be willing to do battle in spiritual realms for, you know, family members of ours that maybe aren't walking with the Lord. And we saw last week that our fight is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The weapons of our warfare, we noted last week, were faith in a risen Savior, faith in Almighty God, the Word of God, the sword of spirit, and prayer. Those are the weapons of our warfare. And God used Abraham to deliver Lot. And it was an amazing victory that occurred. These four kings led by Chedorlaomer, he's the king of Elam, that ancient kingdom, the initial kingdom of Persia there in the Middle East. These four kings came down and they put down a rebellion of five kings. And then Abram with 318 trained servants goes up to defeat Chedorlaomer and his forces to be able to gather back and rescue Lot. Then right after the battle, we saw how Melchizedek, this king of Salem, his name means king of righteousness. He brings out the bread and the wine. And the bread and the wine there in Genesis chapter 14, what we looked at last week, it's the first reference to, it's the first picture of communion in the Bible. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if, if you missed it last week, for whatever reason, you know what? Go back and check that study out. Watch it. It was really good, I think, just how the Lord explained to us the many aspects of communion and what we can expect when we go to the Lord's table and we partake of communion, right? First off, I'll just briefly highlight it. It's an opportunity like Abram met Melchizedek, this king of peace. It's an opportunity for us to meet the king of peace, to meet the king of righteousness. It's an opportunity for us to meet with Jesus as we come to the table of the Lord. And we can expect to receive refreshment and strengthening, to be refreshed from the battles that lie behind us, the battles of last week. And then we also saw that we can be strengthened and prepared for the battles that are ahead of us. This is all found in, again, Genesis 14. And we can expect to receive blessing from the one mediator between man and God. And we can expect to receive revelation. Melchizedek, this king and this priest, it's an unusual combination. It's a picture of Jesus, how he reveals to Abraham, Abram at this time, who God actually is, right? He reveals a name of God to Abram that Abram had never heard before. El Elyon, God Most High. And furthermore, he goes on to reveal that he's the possessor of heaven and earth. It was also revealed to Abram at the same time that it was God who was his deliverer. It was God who fought for him. It was God who brought this victory over his enemies. And uh, finally, we saw that communion was a time of consecration. It was during this time of communion that Abram raises his hand to God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and consecrates his life to him. And as we come to that table, it's a time for us. As we partake of communion, it's a time for us 
to consecrate our lives afresh to our Savior. So again, if you haven't seen that study last week, I encourage you, what you want to do is you want to go back and look at Genesis chapter 14. But we pick up here now in, in chapter 15, and verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, I just want to take a, a quick minute here and just mention, point out that it says the word of the Lord came to Abram, right? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the Father by the prophets. It tells us that God has used various methods in the past to speak to his people. At times, he would speak directly to them through a personal appearance. It's called a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ or a theophany. Again, it's just this they're one of the same terms, really. It's just this pre-incarnate is where God appears to man in bodily form. God has also spoken to his people with an audible voice from heaven. He's used angels at times to bring different messages and, and reveal God's heart in certain circumstances. And he's also moved on men's heart through the Holy Spirit. And of course, as we just read here, he's, he's spoken in times past through prophets. He can and he has used dreams and visions like we read about here in the story of Abram to speak to those he wanted to reveal himself to. He's used dreams and visions. But Hebrews goes on, verse 2, and it says that he has in these last days, spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So it's a reference to how God is speaking to us in our days, right? The days referred to as the last days, it's the time that we're living in. These last days in which we're living in, God has chosen to speak to us through his son, through the living word. And I, I wonder... If we were being completely honest here, how long has it been since you've clearly heard the Lord's voice speaking to you? His primary method of communicating to us now is through the living word. It's through the Bible. That's how he's chosen to communicate to each one of us. And I just want to encourage you today. I just want to encourage you to take time to get away with your Bible and just spend time with the Lord. Make it a regular part of your devotional life. Take time and just find a quiet place and sit at the feet of Jesus just to read the word and receive from him. It's not enough to listen to podcasts or recorded messages or sermons. It's not enough to read a Bible verse you know, real quick before you choke something down, some, choke down some breakfast and get out the door. You know, it's not enough to do prayer walks. To just go on long walks and prayer and pray or just listen to worship. That's not enough. That's not how God is going to speak to us primarily. It's through the word. And if it's been a while since maybe you've heard God speak clearly to you, hey, I want to give you five things that are going to help you in hearing God's voice in a clearer way 
Okay? The first one is you read your Bible systematically. All right? You got to have a plan to read through the Word. Don't, don't, please don't. Do that Bible roulette kind of thing where you ask God to speak to you and you just plop open your Bible and right there, Matthew 27, 5, Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. What? Come on, Lord. I really need to hear from you right now. You know, I'm going through some, some tough times. Would you just, please, will you just, please speak to me? Tell me what you'd have me do. So you open the Bible up again, throw your finger down, random place, Luke 10, 37, and you read, Jesus says, go and do likewise. It's not the way to go about hearing God's voice. It's no way to read the Bible, just a little piece here, a little piece there, randomly. Have a plan to read through your Bible and then read through the entire Word of God. If you read the Bible at what's called a pulpit reading pace, if you read the Bible as fast as I've read verses already, right? You can read through the entire Word of God in 72 hours. That's all it takes. If you read at a pulpit reading pace, you'll read through the New Testament in 24 hours. If you read starting today, there's only 260 chapters in the New Testament. So if you start today and you read three chapters a day, right, five days a week, you'll complete the New Testament by the end of August, right? And it's just reading 10 to 15 minutes a day. If you read five Psalms a day and one proverb a day, you'll read the entire Psalms and proverb in one month. And if you just keep going, you'll read through them 12 times in one year. Read through your Bible. First time I ever read through the Bible, I used a one-year Bible. That's the way I did it. It's just broken down into daily readings. You know, Tricia, she's had the ladies going through a one-year Bible. And uh, everybody that I've heard that's been in that loved it, right? It's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. It's already chewed up for you almost. You just got to sit down and, and read it. So have a plan and read your Bible systematically. Secondly, read your Bible expectantly. When you read your Bible, when you get alone with the Lord and you open up your word, you need to expect God to speak to you. If you don't expect God to speak to you, then when he speaks to you, you're going to miss it. You're going to be too busy with other things. You won't hear him. God's heart is to speak to us when we open his word. The question is, do I expect him to speak to me? Because if I expect him to speak to me, then you know what? My ears are going to be open and attuned to his voice. So not only do we read our Bible systematically and expectantly, but thirdly, we want to read it meditationally, right? It just means you think through the things that you read. You mull it over in your mind. You know, a, a cow chews its cut. It just chews it and chews it and chews it. And then he swallows it. Later on, a little bit later, he brings it back up, chews it some more. He's just trying to get all the nutrition out of, out of the grass that he can get. And that's the way we're to read the Bible. We're to read it. We're to think about it. We go off to work. We go off doing something. We're shopping. We're doing whatever we're doing. Yeah, bring it back up to memory. Think about it some more. Lord, what do you mean? What are you saying there? Try to get everything out of it that we can. And then try to get some more. When we read the Bible meditationally, we need to take time to note certain things. We need to take time to note things like 
Who, what, where, when, why, and how? Who's talking? What's being said? You know, where are they talking? Why are they talking? When are they talking? Right? What time of day is it when they're talking? How does this apply to me? When I instruct people about reading the Bible and how to get the most out of it, I use this little acronym called SPECS, you know, like spectacles, right? S-P-E-C-S. It's just to help you to be a little bit more productive. It helps you to tune in on some things that you can notice, right? First, S stands for, is there a sin to avoid? Okay, pick up on it. P, is there a promise in this verse to claim? E, is there a, an example to follow? Or is there an exhortation to heed? C, is there a command to obey? And then the final S is summarize the chapter in your own words, and then seek to make application, right? What's the imagery? And what does it mean? How does it apply to my life? How does it fit into my situation? Lord, what are you saying to me? And that's, as we sit and we meditate through these things, think through these things, you know what? You're gonna hear God's voice much more clear than maybe what you have in the past. The fourth thing is we read our Bible conversationally. We read the word, that's God speaking to me, and I respond in prayer, I'm speaking to God. And now this is a conversation. Well, what do you mean, Gare, about you know, a conversation? For instance, you know the verse that I always go to to explain this is Psalm 1. So you can flip in your Bible real quick to Psalm 1, and we'll see what it says says the first verse of course is blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers and you notice boy it's a downward trend first they're walking then they're standing and then they're sitting and it's also you know with ungodly and sinners and scornful right so you just notice things like that notice trends right but then verse two but in contrast but is always contrast but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So you read a verse like that, and then you just cry out to the Lord, God, cause me to be a man that delights in your word. Cause me to be a man that your word is on my mind. I'm meditating on it day and night. Lord, make me a tree that refreshes others with its fruit and with its shade. Make me a tree that's strong, that when the storms of life come, I'm not going to be blown over. Lord, make me fruitful. Strengthen me, Lord. Make me fruitful so I can withstand those trials. You know, it's just this conversation. Lord, cause me to prosper in all I do for you. And it's just this conversation back and forth. I'm reading, I'm praying. I'm reading, God's speaking to me, I'm praying, I'm speaking to God. So first, read the Bible systematically. Second, read it expectantly. Third, read it meditationally. Fourth, read it conversationally. And fifth, read it obediently. Read your Bible obediently. Whenever you're reading your Bible, you come to it with a heart to obey whatever it says. It reminds me of Samuel when he was a little boy. Remember the story there, 1 Samuel 
His mom drops him off in the temple. And he's serving the temple. And it says that Samuel didn't actually recognize God's voice yet. So he hears God call out to him, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel gets up. He runs over to Eli and says, here I am. You called me. And Eli's like, what? Go back to bed. I didn't call you. And it happens again. And it happens again. And Eli realizes, you know what? This is the Lord speaking to Samuel. So he tells Samuel, next time you hear the voice you say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the idea behind that is even before God speaks, I've purposed in my heart, I'm going to obey whatever it is he's going to say. And that's the attitude we need to bring to our Bible reading. Read it systematically. We have a plan. We read it expectantly. We expect God to speak to us. We read it meditationally. We look at who, what, when, where, why, what does it mean? How does it apply? We read it conversationally. God speaks to us through the word. We speak to him in prayer. And then we read it obediently. We obey whatever it is that's said. So that was a little longer than a minute. Forgive me. Let's go on. Verse one, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So it says after these things. So this is an indication that these events, this chapter, it occurs right on the hills of chapter 14. There's no break in the story, right? Abraham, he just went to battle. He rescues Lot. And now we read here that the Lord comes to Abraham and tells him, hey, don't be afraid. You know, why do you think God told Abraham not to be afraid? I mean, think about it. Why would God say that? Well, I think the obvious answer is because Abraham was afraid. I mean, that's how hard Bible study is in my mind, right? Uh, you ask a question and there's an obvious answer, right? When you put the story together, though, this is early morning. Abraham, he's probably had this sleepless night where he's just wrestled with fear, where he's just thinking, you know what? Oh, my goodness. What is going to happen to me? Have you ever had a night like that? Most of us struggle with fear at one time or another. Most of us struggle with fear during one season of life or, or another. Fear is something that's common probably to all of us at one time or another. And isn't it amazing how we can be strong one minute, how we can obtain great victories one minute, and then just a little bit later, gripped with fear, just paralyzed by it. I have a good friend who pastored one of the larger Calvaries in Europe. Great teacher, seasoned missionary. I mean, he was a pioneering missionary. He broke ground for Calvary Chapel. One Sunday in the pulpit, he couldn't catch his breath. He started to feel a little lightheaded, started to feel a little faint. He thought he was dying. He had to be taken out of church by an ambulance and taken to the ER because he thought he was having a heart attack. And you know what was going on? He was, he was overtaken by a panic attack. And he never had one before. All of a sudden, he just, it hit him. And he's just fearful. And all of us can probably remember a time where maybe not that bad, maybe that bad, but certainly times where we've just wrestled with fear. And to me, I think it's so crazy because fear always thinks the worst. It always takes it to the nth degree, to like the very worst 
possible scenario, and it can be paralyzing, and it can be crippling. You know, the great apostle Paul, he wrestled with fear at times. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul, he said to the church of Corinth in regards to him being there, he said, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. While Paul was at Corinth, the Lord spoke to him in night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The Greek there where it says, Do not be afraid, actually the Greek is this, Stop being afraid. Paul was a great man of God, and he struggled with fear. As you read through the Bible, you see fear is something that's common even amongst people that are used mightily by God. David struggled with fear. He ran from, he ran from Saul fearing for his life. David, he came to this conscious decision, though, regarding his fear. He writes in Psalm 56, 3, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. That's a conscious decision. David makes a decision to trust in the Lord when he feels fear coming upon him. He decides that when he's faced with fear, he decides, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to look up. I'm going to look to the Lord. He writes, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 4. He decided to put his energy into seeking the Lord when he was faced with fear instead of allowing fear to take him over. David chose to trust in the Lord and because of it, he received deliverance. And I think it's interesting to note, we cannot fear and trust at the same time. I mean, we cannot go left and right at the same time. We cannot go, it's impossible to go north and south at the same time. I mean, trust and fear, they're mutually exclusive. And if you happen to be a person who struggles with fear, maybe you want to memorize a couple verses. I'll give you some verses that are really precious to me. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 41.10. You might want to mark this, this verse. Psalm 41.10. The Lord's speaking. He says, fear not for, and that's a reason word, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I mean, what a great verse to memorize and to have ready in the face of fear. What a great promise. There's no reason to fear because God is with you. His promise is to give us strength. His promise to you is to hold you and to uphold you, to see you through whatever it is that you're facing. You don't have to fear. And flip over a page to Psalm 43. Here's another great one, Psalm 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For, and again, it's a reason word, I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Boy, it blesses me so much. God says we have no reason to fear because he's created us. 
He's created us with a purpose in mind and he's going to see us through. He's saved you and he's called you and you don't have to fear anything because you are his. That blesses me. You know, it just makes me want to cry. The understanding that I am God's. Boy, you know what? You're his son or you're his daughter. And he wants you to know that tonight. You belong to him. And what can possibly come against you to separate you from his loving embrace? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing. The disciples also, they were often in fear. I mean, I love reading about the disciples. It's almost like a comic book. You know, it just cracks me up. They're there on the Sea of Galilee. They see Jesus walking on the water and their eyes light up like saucers. They're afraid. You know, and Jesus says, hey, fear not. The most commonly quoted phrase of Jesus. You know, in the upper room, remember? They were in the upper room afraid of the Jews. It says in John 20, verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus says, Guys, don't fret. Be at peace. There's nothing to be afraid of. And then, you know what? Jesus spoke to their fear also in John 14. Pastor Chuck said, if you're going to remember one chapter, if you're going to memorize one chapter of the Bible, make it John 14. Because Jesus says, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then in this chapter, Jesus goes on to speak to them and encourage them about his return. After that, he talks to them about the Father answering their prayers when they cry out to him. He talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son coming to dwell within them. I mean, do you realize that it's the triune God that dwells within our heart? It's not just the Holy Spirit. It's not just Jesus but it's also God the Father, John 14 tells us, dwells in our heart. And then Jesus promises them his peace. Then he repeats to them, John 14, 27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. All these promises are given to us. All these promises are given to you and they're given to me. And in light of that, what should our response be? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Paul, he encourages Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7, saying, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. What has he given us? It says he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Timothy, there's no reason to fear at all. There's nothing to fear, right? The fears you're struggling with, Timothy. It's not the Lord. John, the apostle of, of love, he writes 1 John 4, 18, says perfect love casts out fear. If you're a person who struggles with fear, you know you don't have to because Jesus, because the Father loves you perfectly. The Father loves you perfectly. As you embrace and you totally and completely you embrace the reality of his love for you, it casts out fear. 
Fear, it's a tactic of the enemy. I mean, the enemy, he only has a couple arrows in his quiver. He reaches back and he's either grabbing fear or doubt because that's really his most effective arrows to shoot at us. Nothing comes into our lives that hasn't been allowed by God to create in us a character that ultimately would glorify Him. To create in us a character that wouldn't be created should He spare us from certain trials and tribulations. Everything in our life is Father-filtered, right? It goes through the Father first before it gets to us. Somebody might say, but, but, but wait, what if He allows, insert your fear here, X, Y, and Z, what if He allows yada, yada, yada in my life? Well, you know what? Oftentimes, the Lord encourages me with a picture in my mind. And this picture in my mind is Jesus in His outstretched arms, right? In His nail-pierced hands being held out to me. And He says to me, can you just not trust me right now? We all can trust the one who gave His life that we might be saved. We all can trust the one who promises to complete that good work in us that He's begun in our lives. We all can trust the one who is able to keep us, who promises nothing can separate us from His love. We all can trust the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and promises to present us before, before His throne with exceeding joy. You know, I want to encourage you, if you're prone to fear, you don't have to fear because God loves you more than you know. God loves you more than you can understand. And if you were able, right now, if we were able to go to heaven and speak to David and speak to Paul and speak to Timothy, speak to all the apostles, speak to Elijah, speak to Abram, all these great men of God, Nehemiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all these great men of God that have been gripped with fear. If we were able to go to heaven and just interview them and ask them, was it worth it? Is God worthy of my trust? After all you guys have been through, after all you guys have experienced, I mean, what's your advice to me? And you know what? They would turn and they would look at you with just love in their eyes and just understanding. And they would say, you have nothing to fear. Nothing at all. God is trustworthy. You can take my word for it. He loves you like a mother loves a little baby. And he's going to care for you with such tenderness. He's going to see you through. He is worthy of your trust. He's never going to let you down. Abram, he was afraid because he may have thought, you know, these four kings that he just defeated, I mean, what happens if they just regather their forces and now they come with a counterattack? You know, Abram's a pilgrim in the land. He's not living in a walled city. There's no defensive walls. He's out in the open. He's exposed. He's vulnerable and you know, those are the feelings. When fear come upon us, that's the way we feel. We're vulnerable to it. We're exposed, right? Well, Abram, he has a sleepless night. His mind is racing, wondering what's going to happen to him. And the Lord comes to him and says, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. The Lord tells Abraham, hey, just relax. 
You don't have to live a life of fear. And he gives him two reasons. He says, I'm your shield. The Lord is our shield. The Lord is saying, Abram, you don't have to worry because I'm here to take care of you. I'm your shield. Nothing comes into your life that doesn't go through me first. There was a decree that was given that anyone praying to anyone other than the king would be thrown into the lion's den. And when Daniel heard this, what did he do? He goes to his room, he opens his doors, and he kneels down and prays as was his custom. And he had confidence. He did it because he had confidence in the Lord that the Lord was able to protect him. There was nothing that was going to be able to hurt him. God would take care of him. And if he was to die, Daniel had confidence that his death would work to the glory of God. He trusted in God. And as a result of that confidence, as a result of that steadfast trust in God that Daniel had, you know what? The king, he had a sleepless night. He was worried what was going to happen to Daniel. And you know, the result was the king ended up praising God because of Daniel's confidence in God. Then the second reason the Lord gives to Abram that you don't have to be afraid is because he says, I'm your reward. I'm your exceedingly great reward. God told Abram that he knows that Abram, he sacrificed to take this stand, right? He went to war fighting for a family member. And we read in chapter 14 that he gives a tenth of all of his assets because he didn't take anything from the battle. And because he didn't take anything from the battle, he wasn't enriched by anything as a result of the battle. And the Lord knew that Abraham said no to the king of Sodom. The Lord knew that he endured that trial, that temptation. I don't want anything to do with the prince of perversity. And the Lord knew that it cost Abraham to take a stand. And God tells Abraham, hey, listen, I'll make sure that you never lose out because you took a stand for me. We can rest in the Lord. God is our shield. He's our exceedingly great reward. If you have the Lord, you are exceedingly rich and no one can take that from you. Well, verse two, Abram said, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now I want you to, I'm gonna tell you right now ahead of time, remember this guy's name, Eliezer of Damascus. It'll come up in the future, and we just need to remember Genesis chapter 15. Verse 3, then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Abram's 85 years old now. It's been 10 years since he's received the promise that God would give him a son and make him a, a great nation. He's been waiting for 10 years. You know, it's like Abram saying, I don't want a reward. You know what? I want a boy. Lord, I just want a son. And just like us, Abram, he's wondering, you know, how's it work out? It's been 10 years, you know. Did I hear it right? I mean, God, what are you doing? He's a little bit confused. And so he just, he just goes to the Lord. And I think it's really encouraging here to notice that Abraham, he goes to the Lord and he's just being real. He's just transparent. It's just, God, you promised me a son. That's all I want, Lord. Here's my heart. Abram's pouring his heart out to the Lord. And you know what? God is patient with Abram. I just love that about our God. He's patient. Maybe you're troubled about some situation today. 
Maybe you're carrying a burden with you tonight. It would benefit you just to be real and, and talk to God. Abraham's called the friend of God, and he just pours out his heart to the Lord. He's respectful. Now, don't get it wrong. He's respectful, but he's also being real and honest and open with the Lord. Abram's bold honesty before the Lord, it's, it's actually a great example for each one of us. Instead of holding back his frustration, he brought it before the Lord with an honest heart. And you know what happens? God answers him. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. God's not threatened by Abram's frankness and prayer. You know, again, God's so very patient with his children. He's so very patient with you and I. He's not disappointed with us. He's not looking for a reason to, to crush us under his thumb. You know what? God doesn't focus on my failures. He rejoices in my growth. And the same is true with you. God is going to make good on his word, even when we think, you know, it's not going to happen. It's been 10 years. Lord, how long? Verse 5, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The Lord took Abram out so that they can be alone. God wants to get Abram away from the hustle and bustle of his house, you know, he's got all these kids running around. Like we said last week, he's probably got a thousand servants. There's, there's a lot of noise probably in this house. I grew up with two sisters. My sisters were older than me. Like, I don't actually remember them a lot as I was a teenager. I don't even think they were around much. But Tina, she grew up with five other brothers and sisters. And I would walk into their house, man, from my house, all peace and quiet. Man, if you weren't screaming in Tina's house, you weren't being heard. There's probably a thousand servants, thousand kids, you know, running around screaming. Yeah, Abram has, he can't hear God. He's got to get away. God takes Abram someplace where Abram can hear God. And then he says to Abram, look up at the stars. Can you number the stars, Abram? It's estimated that there's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. It's estimated that in the universe, there's a hundred billion, with a B, galaxies with a hundred billion stars in them. The idea here is, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless your descendants so that your offspring is going to be so great. And it's going to be innumerable like the stars. And I think it's so interesting that God actually uses this, the examples of stars in heaven to reiterate the promise to Abram because one of Abram's descendants, you know, the greatest of his descendants is going to carry a title of the bright and morning star. It's Jesus. According to Psalm 139, 17 and 18, I think this blows me away. According to Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, the only other thing that's innumerable in the Bible is God's thoughts towards you. Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, 
they would be more in number than the sand. Boy, how great is God's love towards you? You know what? It's great. The word doesn't even do it justice. The word falls so short, it's like it falls on the ground right before me because it pales in comparison to how great God's love is for each one of us. Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is a central verse in the Bible. It's quoted in Romans 4 twice. It's quoted in Galatians 3, and it's quoted in James 2. And Galatians 3 tells us that God is speaking to Abram here regarding his seed, right? Where it talks about blessing his descendants. It's talking about, Galatians tells us he's talking about the seed, singular. And I believe Abram understands this is a promise. This is a promise given to fulfill the promise given back in Genesis 3 regarding the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, speaking of Abram, right? He said, Abram rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And, and I think that's a reference to this time where Abram realizes what God is saying in regards to his seed. But there's something that we can miss here if we're not careful. It says, Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Well, but wait a minute. Didn't Abraham believe in the Lord already? I mean, you know, he believed the Lord. He left Ur of the Chaldees and followed him here to the land of Canaan. The verse says, Abram believed in the Lord. It doesn't say that Abram believed the Lord. He believed in the Lord. I think it makes a difference. I think there's something here, something here regarding the Lord that Abram sees and is now able to trust and rest completely in. The word believe means to place all your weight upon, to trust completely in, to trust the entirety of who you are to. That's what the word believe means. And here it says at this very moment in Abram's life, he believes in the Lord. It's like the matter is finally settled in Abram's heart once and for all that God is able. It doesn't mean that he's not going on in life, that he's not going to make any more mistakes. You know, he's going to make some doozies of mistakes ahead of him. He's going to take Hagar and have a son with Hagar. And boy, that's going to present some problems right there in itself. But something happens here in Abram's life where he begins to trust in the Lord and then to let go. He leans on God. He rests the entire weight of who he is on the Lord. And he gives the Lord all that he is and just rests. No longer fearful. So Abram rests in the Lord God. He accounted it, this act of faith, this act of trusting completely in the Lord. He accounted it to him for righteousness. It's not accounted to him as righteousness, but accounted to him for righteousness. The righteousness that God allowed to be supplied was in result of Abram's belief, trust in, and resting in the Lord. And again, there's no doubt in my mind that that trust of Abraham is relative to Christ. It's relative to the seed singular. 
There's more than what we actually see here in this picture. As you read Romans and Galatians and James, they give us more detail and more insight into actually what's going on here. Verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you a land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Well, wait a minute, Garrett. Didn't it already say that he believed God? No, it says he believed in God. Okay, now he's asking a completely different question. He's not questioning God. He believed in God. and Now he's asking, how shall I know I'm going to inherit the land? Verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now the idea behind a three-year-old is that they're in the prime of their life. And again, this is, everything points to Jesus and the cross. It points to Jesus how he was sacrificed for our sins there on the cross in the prime of his life. Verse 10, then he brought all these to him, cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So what you have here, have you ever heard the, the phrase cutting covenant? This is where it comes from. What happened is they would take these animals, they would cut them in two, they would lay them out, and uh, the two parties, they would put the birds at each end. They wouldn't cut them in two. They, they were whole at each end. And the two parties, they would walk between these animals. They would meet in the middle. And uh, again, if you heard that phrase, I'll meet you in the middle or I'll meet you halfway, comes from this. What's basically being said in this type of a covenant is when they meet, they shake hands, well, kind of grab each other's wrists, really. And what they're saying is, if you break this covenant, you're going to be like these animals, dead meat. That's the seriousness of the covenant. A sacrifice was made, blood was shed, and that's what makes this covenant sacred. So we're going to see that Abram, he's going to fall asleep, and it's going to be the Lord that walks through these animals by himself. And the covenant is solely based on God alone. He doesn't need Abram's help. It doesn't depend on Abram at all. It's strictly a unilateral covenant. It's strictly based on God's grace and only dependent on his nature. And God doesn't make this covenant with Melchizedek. You know, he doesn't make it with the king of righteousness. He makes it with Abram, this idol-worshiping Gentile. And the reason why is it's to show the world that he is able to make a covenant of grace with each one of us. And the covenant is sure that all we could see, all of us could see his reliability and that we would completely rest in his promises made to us through witnessing this covenant that he makes with Abram. You know, it's a picture of the New Testament covenant, the new covenant that we have with God. It also is a unilateral covenant. It's based solely on the Lord and what Christ has done for us on the cross. It has nothing to do with ourselves. We can stand with confidence in the covenant that he's made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ because he's a faithful one. There should be a change in our behavior as a result of believing in that covenant but it's a unilateral covenant, again, based solely on the faithfulness of God and what he has done for us. Verse 11, 
And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And I think this is a picture of the warfare that, that we face as we seek to just stand in God's grace, right? All these unclean birds come down and Abraham's trying to shoo them away, trying to take care of them, fight them off. And the darkness here, it may be a representation or maybe it's an explanation to Abram of the outer darkness that those that fail to place their trust in God will find themselves, right? And it's horrifying and it's unimaginable. So many churches today refuse to tell people what's ahead of them if they fail to receive Christ. You know, in their minds, the idea, words like sin, repentance, hell, and the blood, those are offensive words. And I've been told, to tell you the truth, in my ministry, I've been told that you should never tell people those things. You know, you're going to offend them. You're going to turn them off from your message. The problem with that is that sin, repentance, heaven and hell and the blood of Christ, they're central to what we believe as Christians. There is a heaven and hell. Sin will keep you from heaven and left unrepentant. A person will find themselves in outer darkness, which is going to be horrifying and again, unimaginable. They'll find themselves separated from God for eternity. It's only the blood of Christ that can save us. It's only through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. It's only through his finished work of the cross that we can go to heaven as we place our faith in it. It's only through Jesus taking our sins upon himself, suffering the penalty for us, as if those sins were his own, right? He shed his blood for us. He suffered and died that we might be saved. And it's not until I recognize that I'm a sinner. It's not until I, that I give myself to the Lord and ask him to wash me in his blood the blood of Christ that I can be cleansed from my sin and be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Spurgeon said a bloodless gospel is a powerless gospel. Salvation is only through the blood of Christ, period. There's no other way. And it's a loving thing to tell people this. Nowadays, nobody wants to be offensive. You know, you got to be, you got to watch out what you said. I heard on the news the other day, somebody said something completely ridiculous. They lost their job. You know, nowadays everybody's trying to, you know, be PC. Don't offend anybody. But hey, Paul says the cross is offensive. Galatians 5.1. And it's intended to be offensive. When we look up at Jesus hanging there on the cross, when we see that he's been beaten beyond all recognition, when we see him there on the cross in his back, just shredded flesh. It looks like hamburger meat after being whipped and scourged. You know, we see him there on the cross and his beard has been plucked out. Boy, it's intended to be graphic. Pools of blood there at the foot of the cross. It's intended to be graphic and it's intended to communicate to us that sin kills. Sin is ugly. It brings about death. We should never be ashamed to share the truth about light and darkness, heaven and hell, light and death, because there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given 
among men by which we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. There's no other way. Verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. Man, people are quick to point out right here. Gotcha. Exodus says they were there for 430 years. Man, it's a contradiction. You can't even, you can't trust the Bible. Well, the nation of Israel was in Egypt 430 years, starting with Joseph and when his family came, 70 people in all. But they were afflicted for only 400 years after a Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph, right? There's no contradiction at all. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterwards, and they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Abram was buried. He died at 175 years. That's a pretty good old age, I'd say, right? He started walking with the Lord when he was 75 years old. That means he walked with the Lord for 100 years. A hundred years of experiencing God's goodness and God's grace, God's faithfulness. A hundred years of going deep with the Lord and learning about Him. Even after a hundred years of walking with the Lord, there's so much more to learn about Him. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2, 7. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is so good that it's going to take ages, plural. It's going to take ages to come for him to explain the goodness he has extended towards each one of us. In verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, talk about God's grace and his patience. Wow. God is going to wait 400 years to judge the inhabitants of the land. He gives them 400 years to repent. When people say, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's an angry God. He's just out there wiping out all these kind of people and racists. You know what? It just betrays their ignorance when they say that. He is patient, he's loving, he's merciful, he's long-suffering. He gives chance after chance after chance for people to repent. And it says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Iniquity stores itself up until the dam breaks, so to speak. Right? God is long-suffering, hoping his goodness will lead sinners to repentance. But one problem is people confuse the situation with saying things like, you know, God must be okay with what it is I'm doing because, you know, he's not stopping me. He's allowing me to continue. But, you know, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell, I'm telling you. We have a conscience that says what we're doing is wrong. We have the Bible that says what we're doing is wrong. And our sins are offending a righteous holy God and left unconfessed our sins are going to require judgment God allows the inhabitants of the land enough time enough opportunity to repent and it's not until they cross a line where you know what they exhaust his patience there is no more redemption for them They've gone too far. They, they can never experience redemption. And it's not until that point that they grow so wicked that God says, okay, enough's enough. I need to judge. You know, it just makes me wonder, how long does America have? 
Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. You know, how long does America have? I don't know. I know we're still here. And because we're still here, that must mean that there are still people who need to hear about the love of Jesus here in our town of Truckee. You know, in this country of ours, it's just fallen apart before our eyes. And here in the world, people still need to hear. We need to live our life with urgency because souls hang in the balance. Time is growing short. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, again, King James Version translates it to your seed singular. So to your descendants, I've given you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Canaanites, the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, they're the giants, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, those that live in Jebus, there in Jerusalem. God says, I've given it all to you, Abram. He doesn't say, I will give future tense. Man, right now, I've given it all to you. In God's eyes, there's no dispute who the land belongs to. It doesn't belong to the Palestinians, it doesn't belong to the Syrians, doesn't belong to the Jordanians or the Egyptians. It's not the U.S.'s land to give away. It's not the EU's land to give away. It's not the U.N.'s land to give away. The land is God's, and he's given it to the nation of Israel forever. Then God passes. You know what's interesting? The land that's described here, it's actually like 300,000 square miles. At the height of the kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, they only possess like 30,000 square miles. I mean, you know what? That area is all theirs. Boy, it blows me away. Anyway, God passes through these parts, these animals. He passes through the parts without Abram. This covenant has nothing to do with Abram. This new covenant, the new covenant that we enjoy, it's better than the old one. You know, it's solely based on God's faithfulness to us. The law, the old covenant, the law was based on man's faithfulness to God, and we fail. Going through the parts, it says that God goes through the parts as a smoking oven and a burning torch. God is coming in judgment as a burning oven, or he's coming as a burning torch lighting our path. The choice is ours, how we want God to come and meet us. You know what? We need to walk away from this chapter confident in the Lord's promises to us. We need not to fear because he's our shield and our protector. He's our exceedingly great reward. In Christ, we have all that we need. In Christ, we are so very rich. His riches and his glory are beyond what we can comprehend. We need to understand and just see how great our Savior is. We need to take comfort in how big our God is. He's able to care for you. He's able to protect you. And He's able to reward you. He's able to see you through to the other side. Whatever it is you're facing today, it's going to be okay. God's going to take care of you. He's going to, like I said, take you through to the other side to his praise and glory. You know, if you're not saved today, you know what, you need to turn to him today.
There's no need to face God's judgment. No need to face the wrath your sin deserves. He's made a way for you to escape the wrath to come. And all you need to do is be broken over your sin. To just be broken over your sin and ask God to cleanse you in the blood of Christ. And ask him to forgive you. You then need to turn from your sins, to repent of them, forsake them, leave that old lifestyle behind, and then turn to God and live your life for Him. He'll give you the power to do that. All you need to do is pray and ask Him. No magic formula, no special words, just sincerity and honesty. God, forgive me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, Lord. I need you. I repent of my sins. I turn towards you. Give me the power to live for you. I believe Christ died on the cross for me, taking my sins, taking my penalty. I believe he died. He was buried. And the third day he resurrected as evidence of an acceptable sacrifice. God, come into my heart. Fill me with your spirit. He'll meet you. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for, thank you for this study, Lord. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your spirit. Father God, would you fill us with your spirit afresh? Would you fill us anew? Would you give us a a fresh revelation of your goodness and grace towards us, Lord? Would you bring revival to our hearts? Lord, would you use us, Lord? Use us for your glory. Use us to affect this dying world outside this office, Lord. Affect this town of Truckee. Lord, use us for your glory. For my brothers and sisters who are struggling with fear, Lord, would you meet them? Would you meet them and speak to them and encourage them and and just strengthen them that they would be able to confidently stand in your promises, trusting that you're able. Lord, for those that maybe don't know you that are asking you, Father, to forgive them. God, would you meet them? Would you just convey to them your heart forgiveness and your willingness to accept them right where they're at. Lord, we love you. God, we praise you. We pray you bless Calvary Chapel, Truckee, Calvary on the Rock. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing here. All to your glory, all to your praise, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.